Thanks, Daniel. Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't got any chance to meet you, my name is Andres, and I get to serve here as pastor of adult ministries at Christ the King. I'm really grateful to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, if you would, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 737 of your Black Bibles. It should be around you in your chairs. If not, you can always pull up an app, or they'll also be behind me here <clears throat> um, on the screens. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We're taking a break this week from our series uh, that we've been going on this past semester through the book of Ephesians. We'll pick that up again next week. But for today, we'll be looking at this text uh, from Daniel chapter 1. Now, um, normally during uh, my sermon, I follow along with the text anyway. So I'm only reading the first seven verses, but uh, keep open the uh, passage there because I will be referencing it throughout the sermon and that way you can follow along. But since I do reference it, I'm only going to read the first couple of verses. So hear God's word to you this morning from Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Now among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chiefs and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the gift that it is to be able to gather with your people in worship and be able to hear from your word, which you gave in order for us to know you and know ourselves better. I do pray that the words that um, we have just read would make their way into our hearts, that they would transform our hearts, and that that would lead to a fruit of our lives, that by your spirit um, you are working in and among us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Several of you have um, heard me tell this story, uh, if I've told it to you. A few years ago, um, I was talking to a bartender at a bar that I used to frequent. Uh, She knew that I was a Christian, and she wasn't, which led to some really good conversations. On one particular night, she comes in to hang out with her friends, and I'm sitting there talking to someone else. She sees me, uh, comes up to say hi, and then we started talking, struck up a conversation. Um, At some point, I shared something along the lines of me believing that in the end, everything would be all right, that things, all things would eventually work out. 
She then looked at me, somewhat serious, and she asked, do you really believe that? I said, yeah, I do. She said, okay, well, let me ask you this. Do you remember the mass shooting that happened a few years ago in Las Vegas? I said, yeah, I remember seeing that in the news. She said, well, my best friend was at that music festival and he was shot in the head and he died. So how do you explain that? Now, um, I won't tell you that this story ended with a happy ending. I actually don't remember what exactly I shared with her after that. I did sit with her there in her grief, and we kept talking. And afterwards, as she was getting ready to leave, she said, you know, I'm really glad you were here. And I said, I'm really glad I was here too. And as I got to thinking about <clears throat> that conversation, the reality is that the question beneath the question was where was hope in that moment? You know, you say that things will all work out in the end. Why did that happen? How did that happen? Now, the question that she was asking, of course, is not limited to those being asked by the outside world. Maybe you're in a particular season right now where even if you're not asking this particular question, maybe you're asking similar questions, such as where is God right now? Why is he allowing this to happen? Now, thousands of years ago, there was a group of people that were asking themselves the same kinds of questions. After centuries of ruling themselves, of living in a land that was promised to them, of serving a God that they believed had chosen them, a foreign enemy empire had come and taken everything that they had, their lands, their homes, their king, their family, their religion, and even dragged them thousands of miles away from their land to a foreign country. And in that moment, as they were sitting there decades later, looking around, thinking and reflecting on what had just happened, they began to ask themselves, why? Why did God allow this? Did God lie to us? Is God really not in control like he thought, like we thought he was? Does this mean that God lost? And it's in that season of their life that they find and receive this message from God. Uh, the section that we just read is part of the first chapter in a book that seeks to begin answering those questions. Now, it doesn't answer, as we'll see here in a moment, all of them, and it Maybe it doesn't even give full answers, but it does give a provocative answer because the message that comes through the book of Daniel is that the God who is king of the world had guided Daniel and his friends to Babylon and continues to guide his people today in this world in the midst of how broken and hurt and how much pain and suffering and death there even is. That's the message of this passage. 
The question is, how are we supposed to think of this guidance? What exactly does it mean that God guides us? How does he do it? Well, that's what we'll look at this morning. God guiding Daniel and his friends in exile, and maybe what that might mean for us as he guides us in our own world. So first, God guides Daniel and his friends sovereignly. Second, God guides Daniel and his friends silently. And third, God guides Daniel and his friends subversively. So sovereignly, silently, and subversively. So let's look at each of these in turn. First, God guides Daniel sovereignly. Now to be sovereign, of course, means to be means to be in total and complete control from beginning to end of both the cause and the effect of a situation. Now follow with me in verses 1 and 2 again. In the 3rd year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles or the furniture from the temple of God. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Now where it says the temple of his God in Babylonia, in the original it says the land of Shinar. He carried it to the land of Shinar. Now, if you remember your Bible history, the land of Shinar should point us back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, which is in the land of Shinar where they erected this, uh, this tower. So already here in the first few verses, we get Daniel setting the stage, setting the... Um, These two sides, if you will, this conflict that has been going on since the beginning of time. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Babylon. The kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. So if you're Israel, reading this book um, decades after it was written, you're still in exile. And you're asking all sorts of questions. Right, including the ones I just mentioned a minute ago. A minute ago, why did this happen to us? Where was God in all of this? Why didn't he do something to stop it? Now, a modern historian would say that Judah fell simply because Babylon was, had a, was a stronger military might. Right, that Judah was small and weak, maybe even divided within herself. And so Babylon took that as an opportunity as a stronger, bigger, more powerful empire to come and take over Israel. A Babylonian priest might have said that the Babylonian god Marduk and his other, uh, and the other gods of the Babylonian uh, deity system were actually stronger than the Israelite god, Yahweh. And so that's why Israel lost, because their god is smaller and weaker. But do you see what these two verses are saying actually happened? They're saying this happened, this meaning exile, 
everything that's implied in that. Not in spite of God's control, but precisely because of and through God's control. Now I know that that's a lot to take in already. How can Daniel say this? Well, I want you to notice two things here in the text. First, where it says that the Lord delivered. Now the term here in the Hebrew uh, could also be translated as the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now pay attention to that because it'll come up several times throughout this chapter and it's actually a pretty interesting term that appears throughout the Hebrew scriptures and into the New Testament. In other words, it's not that Nebuchadnezzar came with all of his power and might and took something as if it was his, as if he was in control. It probably looked that way to Nebuchadnezzar and to Israel and to Jehoiakim. But what this verse is saying is no, God gave the king of Judah and all of Israel into Babylon's hands. Do you see how crazy that sounds? Second, it says, the Lord gave, there's that word again, some of the articles from the temple of God. And these Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia. Now what's happening here? Well, what we're seeing is Yahweh allowing his enemies to take all of the furniture from the temple and allowing them to be carried off thousands of miles away and put in another God's temple. Now, what did that mean? Well, in Near Eastern religious culture, that would have been like saying, your God is a loser. And look how I'm demonstrating it. Look how I'm showing it. Look what I'm doing. I'm grabbing all this furniture, all these articles, all these vessels. I'm taking them from your temple and I'm putting it in my God's temple to serve the purposes of our gods. And do you see how that would have made Yahweh, the God of Israel, look? And yet, what is this verse saying? It's saying... Actually, God allowed his temple furniture to be taken away to another God's temple. He allowed it. What these verses are saying is God was actively involved in Israel's exile. It didn't catch him by surprise. He completely allowed this to happen. The question, of course, is why? Why did he allow this to happen? Well, one commentary says that what we're seeing here is God's severe faithfulness. What you see here is God simply being true to his word. He had promised blessings to Israel if they kept um, their side of the covenant of the agreement, if they were faithful and obedient, and he warned of the possible consequences as they viol- if they violated the terms of that agreement, of that covenant. And that's precisely what had happened. If you remember reading Israel's history in either uh, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, or any of the prophets, you can see how far down, how terrible, how evil Israel had become. 
prostituting themselves, killing one another, stealing and lying in the court for the rich against the poor, falling down and worshiping idols. I mean, to the point where they were sacrificing, offering up their own babies before fire to a foreign god. And God had tried warning them for hundreds of years. If you don't stop this, there will be consequences. If you don't stop this, there will be judgment. And sure enough, after sending prophet after prophet to warn them and them killing prophet after prophet, the consequence comes and judgment comes in the form of exile. Now it's true, uh, that wouldn't necessarily make exile any easier. But there is a point to this. Tim Keller says that when confronted about why God allows even his people to suffer and feel pain, we might not know exactly why. And that's true of this text. At least this text doesn't tell us exactly why. Certainly not um, it certainly doesn't give us any reasons that might make sense to our modern sensibilities. But it does remind us that some of it is our own doing. Like Israel, we bring certain wrongs in our life that are a natural consequence of the lives that we live. However, we know that that is not true all of the time. We may not know the reason why God allows his people to suffer, but we do know the reason that, it's, that he doesn't. We know it's not because he doesn't care. We know it's not because he doesn't love us and care for us. And we certainly know that it's not because he isn't in control of the situation. Here we see Yahweh, a God who allows himself to suffer shame and ridicule by allowing this furniture, these vessels to be taken from his temple to a foreign temple, to a uh, foreign temple's God. In other words, he is willing to walk with his children in and through suffering, even if it's their own doing. That is precisely the kind of God that he is. So first, here we see God guiding Daniel sovereignly. Second, God guides Daniel silently. Verses 3 to 17, which we uh, didn't finish reading. We started reading the first verses, but we didn't finish. Uh, is a well-known passage, well-known story. Um, Daniel and his friends and others are put to a test. They're forced to go through uh, an examination as King Nebuchadnezzar orders one of his chiefs to drag princes and nobles and all the young men who were royalty to be trained in Babylon for his own service, for his palace, for his kingdom, for his purposes. Now, this was very common practice at the time. A king that would take over another country would take the best and brightest of that country uh, to then come and serve him in different ways. In this case, Nebuchadnezzar wanted young men to serve him in his palace to further the purposes of his kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. Now, what this meant for Daniel and for his friends 
was that he and his friends were dragged to Babylon in order to, says verse four, learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, if you know or remember your world history, you'll know what a massive undertaking this would have been, which is why the process took three years. What it basically was with a complete Babylonian makeover, where these young men would be indoctrinated over a period of three years, day and night, studying all the languages, all the extensive literature, the primary texts, the religions, on and on and on. The Babylonians would be in charge of their education, their enculturation, their dreams, their future, their food, their dress, and even their religion. That's what verses six and seven are meant to communicate. This amounted to a total and complete identity transformation. I mean, can you even imagine? You have Daniel one day growing up with his parents in the home, enjoying the fruit of the land. And you have his parents with dreams for young Daniel planning his future, what schools to send him to, maybe what career he would have had. And in a moment, those dreams are shattered. His name was even changed. His identity was thrown into chaos. I've got a pastor, uh, friend, and mentor, serves in church here uh, in Sugarland, and he goes down to Brazil at least once a year to go do mission work down there. And he tells me this story about uh, the very first time that American missionaries uh, went to Brazil back in the 50s and 60s. And the Brazilians, who my friend has talked to, actually told him about uh, what their first experience with those first missionaries was. They talk about how horrible they actually were. One of the Brazilians uh, told him, they made us wear white shirts and ties. We had to sit down at their tables and eat their food and drink Coca-Cola. And then he cried in front of them, thinking about this experience. They were trying to take away their identities, trying to take away their clothing, taking their food away, and all in the name of the religion. This is what was happening to Daniel and his friends. And we have to ask, where was God in the midst of all of that? You know, verses 3 to 17 aren't as vocal about God's sovereign role, but it's still there, silently working In fact, in the middle of the section in verse 9, it says this, Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. The Hebrew here is actually the exact same term that we get in verse 2. God gave favor and compassion to Daniel before the official. God's grace is quiet in this section. But it's there nonetheless. In the middle of the re-education, God gives favor and compassion 
to Daniel and his friends. They undergo this test and it says at the end in verse 17 that to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning and Daniel could even understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Do you see God's grace working in the midst of this period where it seemed like things were silent? J.I. Packer commenting on this says that to wait on the Lord is a constant refrain in the Psalms and it is a necessary word because God often keeps us waiting. He is not in such a hurry as we are and it is not his way to give more light on the future than we need for action in the present or to guide us more than one step at a time. When in doubt, do nothing but continue to wait on God. When action is needed, light will Come. So second, God guides Daniel silently. Third, and finally, we see God guiding Daniel subversively. Now what does that mean? This first chapter actually ends three years later. Uh, Between verses 1 and 20, there is a three-year gap where Daniel and his friends are simply serving at the behest of Nebuchadnezzar in his palace, being trained in all kinds of Babylonian learning, literature, etc. And after three years, it's crunch time. When Daniel and his friends are taken before the great king Nebuchadnezzar to be tested on their appearance, their intelligence, their knowledge, and their presence, they receive high marks across all subjects. In fact, it says that the king, in verse 19, found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom. Ten times better is probably hyperbole, but it does demonstrate and show to us how vastly superior these, va- these young men were in every aspect compared to the others. And here is the subversiveness of God's guidance. It's that in the end, the losers have become the winners. The small have become big. The weak have become the strong. See, in the beginning, Daniel and his friends are captives, subjugated, enslaved to this vastly powerful Babylonian empire. But here in the end, they end up as the heads of the palace corps to the point where they begin to serve the interests of Nebuchadnezzar and his vast empire, Babylonia. Now, if that weren't enough, the story ends like this, verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, that might not, the name King Cyrus might not mean a whole lot to us because we don't know who King Cyrus was, nor do we care. But Israel would have understood who King Cyrus was. 
King Cyrus was the king of Persia who was not alive at the time that Daniel was taken into exile. But eventually, King Cyrus was born. He becomes the king of Persia and then leads Persia to take over Babylonia. This happened almost 70 years after verses 1 and 2. So do you see what verse 21 is saying? It's saying by this time in verse 21, Nebuchadnezzar has died. Babylon is no more. But who remains? Daniel. Maybe 80 years old at the time of King Cyrus, but alive and thriving and leading and flourishing. Subversive. This verse 21 is only 11 words long, but it packs such a punch. It's saying, where is Nebuchadnezzar now? Where's Babylonia now? Gone, forgotten, lost to history. But Daniel remains standing strong. God blesses him with such a long life that Daniel outlasts three of the kings of Babylon. No wonder... A commentator writes, kingdoms fall and rise, but God's people go on. That is ultimately the message of this section. It's the message of this chapter, and it's the message of the book of Daniel. So, God guides Daniel and his friends sovereignly, silently, and subversively. And while that is inspiring and maybe even encouraging, what exactly does that mean for us? It means that if God did that for Daniel, we can trust that he has done that and will continue to do that for us if we're willing and if we're open. See, in the beginning of the story, as God is guiding Daniel subversively, remember what happened. His temple furniture is taken from his temple to a foreign god's temple. Yahweh, what we see here, is willing to defile himself if it means awakening his people. Now, many years later, this same God would willingly leave his own home his promised land, heaven, to travel to another world, our world, full of brokenness and sickness and pain and suffering and death. Jesus was sent from heaven into this sinful world. John 3.16 reminds us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave. Nobody took Jesus from the Father. The Father gave him so that no one may perish but have eternal life. God sends, gives his son who is willing to suffer shame and defeat and abuse and even death before a watching world 
if that means awakening his people. If that means saving his people. If that means drawing his people to himself. He was willing to undergo torture and betrayal and suffering and death on a cross. There is absolutely no length that God isn't willing to go in order to show you the depths of his love. It's why the Apostle Paul understands this reality and writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword? I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God has been faithful to you, and he will continue to be faithful to you. Will you trust him to guide you in your life? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that though being sinners and debtors of yours, you still sent and gave your son for all of us out of love out of mercy, and out of grace. Lord, may we remember that this morning as we continue and go about our lives. There are many winds and ways that seek to break us, to take our attention off of you, Jesus, as our Lord and as our Savior. I pray that by your spirit, you would keep us strong and firm in the faith, neither looking left nor right, but having our eyes firmly fixed on you, Jesus, who are the author and the perfecter of our faith. For those of us who are weak this morning, strengthen us by your spirit, aliven us once again to the mysterious but wondrous works of your grace. How amazing and majestic you are, O Lord, over all the earth. And we praise you and worship you this morning as one people. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.